Welcome to A Look at the Issues. A Look at the Issues is a policy podcast based at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. I am your host, Suta Kavari. Now, as many of you might have noticed, we've been off the air, or rather, we've been silent on the apps because we've been spending the last couple of weeks reflecting on our new reality and thinking of the different ways to continue with the podcast, with many of us impacted differently and now in different parts of the world. The trick for us was... How do we continue having these discussions about the various policy challenges that we face when we are confronted by an unprecedented global crisis that has not only confined us to the Indus, but also changed how we engage with anything else? But we've decided to continue recording episodes for the podcast and to capture the uniqueness of this moment, um, strange as it may be, and also collect stories about our collective resilience. We will be highlighting initiatives and ways that governments, organizations, NGOs, businesses, small to large, care workers, essential workers, and everyone else, everyday interactions, how people have been getting on and importantly keeping safe and keeping sane. It is my hope that these discussions and stories will lift our collective spirits as we navigate this truly surreal times. You know, it's it's funny. I remember when the first cases of COVID-19 were being reported in Europe. Uh, my mother would constantly send me these messages. And you know you know with those messages, they're very long. They're forwarded from some or other auntie group on WhatsApp and long chain messages. And almost daily, I would receive something corona-related. One of my favorites was advice on the many ways to avoid contracting coronavirus, which included, uh, amongst other things, avoiding large crowds, staying indoors, wearing a mask and goggles, and keeping your throat constantly moist by sipping water every 15 minutes, but making sure that it's the right temperature, not too hot, not too cold. And in one of those, in one of those many messages was predictions of what would happen if there was inaction by governments. Um, and obviously the consequences of the virus spreading businesses, borders, schools being closed, and lockdown measures being put in place, very similar to what we're experiencing now. It is crazy to think that that was in February. And even crazier to think that my mother, a primary school teacher in Vintok, Namibia, had more foresight about the dangers posed by COVID-19 than the supposed leader of the free world and many of the most powerful politicians in the world. Obviously, governments around the world have responded differently to the threats of COVID-19 and have implemented a variety of measures to contain the spread of the virus and save lives. For once, the economy has taken a backseat and we're now focusing on what matters most, keeping people safe. In this episode of A Look at the Issues, we're looking at what those measures that governments have taken in response to the COVID-19 outbreak have been. Tom Hell will be talking to us. Tom Hell is an Associate Professor in Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government, and he'll be talking to us about the Oxford COVID-19 Government Response Tracker, which has been collecting data on the different policy responses governments around the world have taken to contain the outbreak. We will also be joined by two students reading for Masters of Public Policy who have been working closely on this tracker, Poliana Lima from Brazil and Femi Adebola from Nigeria. Um, Poli and Femi will also share views on how their respective governments have responded, Brazil in particular being an interesting case study of what happens when you have a president unable to rise to the occasion or the moment, repeatedly referring to the threat of the virus as just, you know, a little flu. Well, someone who had the little flu was one of our colleagues here at Blavatnik, Wimeng, who's also reading for a Master of Public Policy, who tested positive for COVID-19 on return to his home country, Singapore, when the directive was issued that all nationals should return. He'll be sharing his story about life in quarantine and in isolation. I'm Suta Kavari, and this is A Look at the Issues. What's really interesting to us is how different different governments have been approaching 
problem. Some have responded very stringently, very quickly. Some have waited a while before increasing their stringency, and others have not uh, yet increased their stringency at the same level as similar countries or some of their neighbors have. So we're seeing a big difference in both the scale of what governments are doing, but also the speed with which they do that. So we're seeing a very different kind of set of responses. We have a lot of divergence of what the federal government is doing and what the state governments are uh, doing on the other hand because the federal government, well, the president on 10th March, he called the pandemic a fantasy and on the 24th he was still calling it a flu while the governors were having very strict measures and trying to contain the virus or trying to shut borders on their domain, like state borders. The case for Nigeria is quite, um, it's funny, it's maybe not just as um, funny as that of Brazil, right? But in Nigeria, what's been happening is um, for a very long time, um, the people have not really trusted the government, right? And for different reasons. So when this whole COVID thing started, people were expecting the government to take a position, you know, to speak up for the president to address the citizens. But that didn't come early. I mean, what was quite apparent to me was uh, not knowing what exactly was going to happen. And so information flow is, is extremely important. So information flow in terms of what uh, the healthcare system is going to offer you and what, what are the next steps. Uh, that the doctors and nurses are going to do and where will I end up and then what does it take for me to end up there and how long the whole process will take. So those are all questions that I kept asking. Hi, my name is Tom Hale. I'm an associate professor at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. And about three and a bit weeks ago, we were finishing up our term and we saw the emergence of this outbreak of a strange, deadly new disease across the world. And so we wondered what we at a school of government could do to help the world respond to this big new challenge. And I was overwhelmed and impressed by how much our student body really wanted to get involved with looking at this really important question. So what we did is we created something um, to track what governments are doing and not doing in response to the virus over time. And that's resulted in a project called the Oxford COVID-19 Government Response Tracker. And what it is, is a system to record in a systematic cross-national and cross-temporal way what governments do and what they don't do as the virus continues to spread around the world. So it works like this. We have a systematic um, set of indicators that we collect information from. Currently, there are 13 different indicators, ranging from school closings to workplace closings, to travel restrictions of different kinds, testing regimes, etc. Um, and we ask our contributors, who are Oxford University staff and students, to look and see what countries are doing or not doing on those things and to record them in a standardized format. So every day we have about 100 and plus different Oxford staff and students who are looking at all different countries in the world. Currently our database has um, Let's see, 119, I see in my most recent count. Um, so we're recording in real time how governments are enacting policies on these 13 different indicators. Um, we've seen it really expand a lot over time. So in the beginning of the year, obviously, many governments were not doing very much. Only a few governments in East Asia were doing anything at all. And as we entered February and really March, that's skyrocketed as the, as the disease itself has increased 
um, in many countries around the world. And so we've seen a massive increase. What's really interesting to us is how different different governments have been approaching the problem. Some have responded very stringently, very quickly. Some have waited a while before increasing their stringency, and others have not uh, yet increased their stringency to the same level as similar countries or some of their neighbors have. So we're seeing a big difference in both the scale of what governments are doing, but also the speed with which they do that. So we're seeing a very different kind of set of responses. Why does that matter? It matters because we're trying to figure out, we as the world are trying to figure out how to fight this virus in real time. We know that to really uh, stop the spread of COVID-19, we need to break the chain of infection. That means finding a way to figure out who has it through testing, to trace their contacts, and to get those people into quarantine or isolation until such time as they're no longer infectious. Um, but obviously that's very hard to do for this particular kind of virus and extremely difficult in many contexts where those kinds of testing and tracing capacities are not yet developed. And so um, at the same time, governments can slow down the spread of this disease by imposing social distancing measures, by trying to make people, uh, give people a few opportunities to transmit the disease to each other. Um, and that really can buy some time, not just for the testing and tracing to get into place, but also to reduce the immediate burden on the healthcare system to allow hospitals to have the capacity and the time they need to make sure that cases don't translate as readily into deaths. Um, because we're doing all this in real time and because governments are figuring out the best ways forward, we really need to take an evidence-based approach. That means we need to observe what's happening in different places to be able to measure the effectiveness of those different policies. We don't yet know what the right combination of policies and factors is in a detailed way beyond that kind of test trace, uh, restricted spread kind of uh, general level stuff. But we're gonna to need to figure, out, figure that out rapidly. And to do that, we really need this kind of more detailed tracing um, and comparable tracing that we're doing uh, with the project. So we see this really as a public resource for the world to aid our response. Um, we are making all the data publicly available in real time on the Povatnik School website, and we're gonna continue doing this for the next few months as the disease progresses. Um, because we know the policies governments are enacting now are probably gonna change as we move further into the crisis. Um, governments are gonna find ways, need to find ways to begin to move out of lockdown. We're gonna need to find ways to make lockdown more socially and economically viable and sustainable over the shorter to medium to longer term. So all of these different kinds of requirements are going to evolve and we're going to evolve our tracking with that, those changes. Our final point I think is that this kind of response really requires an evidence-based approach, but also a cooperative one. Um, a lot of our instincts when we see this kind of virus are to close off connections from others, be it between people or between nations. Um, and indeed, viruses like this transmit themselves through our connections. But even while retaining opportunities or, or constraining opportunities rather to create physical spread of the virus, we need to increase the way we work together to fight it. No one's gonna beat this virus by themselves. So the idea that you can kind of close yourself off to the world in order to protect yourself is a foolhardy one. Um, as this proceeds, we're gonna need to have protocols between countries for how to distribute different resources. We need to have protocols between countries about how to allow efficient movement of people. Um, all of that's going to require a really cooperative approach. 
Uh, I think we have yet to see that emerge at large scale. Uh, the world has found many more opportunities, sadly, for conflict rather than cooperation. But I think the necessity of uh, cooperation will become more and more apparent to governments and to everyone as we get deeper into it. So I'm optimistic we'll be able to, through an evidence-based approach, find more cooperative outcomes going forward. That was Tom Hill, Associate Professor in Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford, discussing the thinking behind the Oxford COVID-19 government response tracker. Now to talk us through some of the insights and commonalities that a lot of governments have adopted in their response to containing the outbreak of COVID-19 are two students who've worked on this project. Uh, we're joined by Poliana Lima from Brazil and Femi Adebola from Nigeria, who will also reflect and share their views on what their respective governments have done to contain the spread of COVID-19 and what the impact of some of those measures will be on not only our conception of democracy, but also the importance of public health. Poli and Femi, thank you for joining. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Suta. Polly, perhaps if we could start with you. Um, what are some of the trends that you've been picking up in the tracker from government responses around the world? And has there been some interesting commonalities? Hi, my name is Poliana Lima. I'm from Brazil. I work with policymaking and different spheres of government. Um, lately, I was working with infrastructure back to Maranhão, one of Brazilian states. And I'm I'm part of the police tracker. I was analyzing some countries of Latin America and their responses uh, for the coronavirus crisis. And for me, one of the most interesting insights of analyzing the compared responses of the countries were how they were taking place. So uh, you see, like governments didn't know how to deal with this level of uncertitude or what was the right answer, right? So on one day, they were saying that just public schools should shut or they would do a certain measure like closing just some areas. And two or three days later, after more 50 cases were diagnosed or even 30, they would take a much more strict measure. They would be um, they would increase the level of stringency of their measures because well, they, they didn't know very well how to do, you know. So this live experiment of how decisions were being taken, I think it was the most interesting part. Right. And Femi, uh, obviously, Polly touched on the wide range of responses from many countries around the world. Um, and in particular, I'm quite interested in how the developing and emerging countries responded to the crisis compared to their counterparts in the so-called developed space. Uh, has, there been, has there been any specific... Um, commonalities between the countries or every single country taking a different approach? All right. Thanks, Sota. Um, my name is Femi Adebola. I'm from Nigeria. Um, prior to my MPP journey at Oxford, I worked as a management consultant supporting public sector to improve systems with a focus majorly on the health systems in my country and other West African countries. Now, um, it's been interesting working on this COVID research with other um, faculty members with faculty members and students uh, and the Oxford community in general. Um, one thing I've found is different countries have actually adopted different approaches, even within the African continent. We've seen countries who were close to, I mean, who were quick to close their borders, you know, to prevent um, importation of the virus from other countries, right? We've also seen countries where there was a bit of delay right, um, in closing of their borders. We've seen countries where people were forced to 
you know, quarantine when they get into the country. Other countries is more like, oh, okay, just go, but please do it at home, you know, ensure you isolate yourself. So we've seen a mix of different things. And um, what that has taught me again is that there are different ways to approach things, right? And I think every country tried to approach things based on their own peculiarities and their own understanding of governance. But the irony is that, yes, different approaches to these issues, but um, the outcome seems to still be similar, right? So we still see the numbers progressing across most countries. And so, which is to say, oh, do we really, you know, have, have um, countries actually gotten the right measures in place? Maybe yes, maybe not. I mean, time will tell. And what has been some of the responses to containing the spread of coronavirus in a country like Nigeria? For Nigeria, the government has actually instituted a number of measures. Currently, the capital city, Abuja, the major commercial city of the country, Lagos, and another states with in close proximity to Lagos, Ogun State, are currently under lockdown. And this is one of the measures the country has taken, the president took, to actually contain the spread of the virus. Bulk of the cases we have in Nigeria is actually in Lagos, and then Abuja has the second highest number of cases, right? So I think that um, was the reason why the government said to lock down those two cities. And then other responses, the government has also invested um, 50 billion naira in as a, as a response to this emergency. And then there's been a lot of private sector participation, you know, to harness resources just to, you know, defeat the virus. Um, a couple of other things have also been done. Some of the health institutions, isolation centers, more centers have been built. And the government is actually trying its best to ensure that they contain the virus. Specifically, um, a couple of other states, you know, have also taken different measures, right? So we've seen states, you know, locking down their own land borders or even some of their airspace saying yes you can come in into our states so and we even within some states we've seen restriction of movement so there's been a lot of diverse um responses at different level at the federal level and also at the state level now i think an interesting case study in, in government responses has obviously been brazil where we've seen a big divergence between what the federal government has been saying and what states have been responding. Polly, perhaps if you can tell us what has been the response been like in, in, in Brazil? Well, that's a very interesting topic because we have a lot of divergence of what the federal government is doing and what the state governments are uh, doing on the other hand because the federal government, well, the president on 10th March, he called the pandemic a fantasy and on the 24th, he was still calling it a flu while the governors were having very strict measures and trying to contain the virus or trying to shut borders on their domain, like state borders, trying to contain uh, flights on the airports. But this was a federal state competence. So there was a lot of clashes between governors and the federal government. But then obviously all the responses that we've been seeing right across the world is that they only work if there's political buy-in right from the top to the bottom. And I think thinking about the Brazilian case and also the cases around the world. Um, Femi, perhaps looking at, at Nigeria, how, how has the political buy-in been? Have people been trusting what the government has been saying? Well, um, the case for Nigeria is quite, um, it's funny. It's maybe not just as um, funny as that of Brazil. 
right? But in Nigeria, what's been happening is uh, for a very long time, um, the people have not really trusted the government, right? And for different reasons. So when this whole COVID thing started, people were expecting the government to take a position, you know, to speak up for the president to address the citizens. But that didn't come early, right? Even though the president set up a committee, you know, headed by the secretary to the government of the federation, you know, to the tax force to actually drive, you know, the nation's efforts towards um, containing the virus. But a lot of people wanted more from the president, right? And so... And the only time they then heard from the president was when he announced the lockdown. Of course, he then spoke about other things that they had done. But we've seen cases where a particular state, you know, in southern Nigeria, which is not within the same political party as that of the president, you know, saying that there is a political undertone to some of the interventions the government, you know, is giving or the government is instituting to contain the virus. He spoke about a, a certain amount of money that was given to a state, so that was given to Lagos states. And just some context, Lagos states is in the same, um, the governor of Lagos states and the president are from the same political party. So he's saying that, um, and the, the other governor I'm talking about is from an opposition party. So he then says, why are they giving Lagos states money and not giving other states money? But, you know, those who defend the government to say, these states is burdened by you know, the effects of COVID because that's where we have, like, majority of the cases in the country. And so they should understand. But, you know, so there's always politics in everything, right? And it depends on the lens through which you want to examine this. But generally, I think the citizens believe this is a crisis at hand and everyone is trying to ensure that, you know, they do their own best to contain the virus. So, yes, there is some political buying. And I think you've touched on a very interesting point around the the need for having information out in the public domain that is up to date and it's accurate. And I think the the three of us are in this country, uh, the UK, where there has been weekly, not even weekly, daily updates from the government around the rise in, in new infections and the rise in, in deaths and recoveries. And the plans that governments have been the government has been doing to try and contain the spread, and I think that has that has played a key role in 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 trying to get people to trust what the government is doing, that they didn't trust in the efforts that are being done and being put in place to contain the virus. But Polly, you mentioned what happens when misinformation starts creeping in, and I'm and I and I and I'm going to ask you a question. Also coming off what Femi said around the pressure on the system. Now, obviously, the pressure on the system has been on the healthcare, which in a number of countries has been woefully underfunded. And obviously, the, what the pandemic has done is that it has exposed all those gaps. But perhaps another pressure on the system has been the, our notion or our understanding of democracy. Obviously, the, all the initiatives that have been put in place by closing down borders, by by closing down schools, by regulating people's movements, by forcing them to stay at home. Obviously, these are all things that go against the very doctrine of how a functioning democracy is supposed to look like. So in thinking about and reflecting about the responses that we've been seeing right across the world, what does that bode for, what is the long-term implication of our the responses for COVID-19 for democracy going forward? Suta, I think this is a very good question because, uh, well, democracy was not doing well before coronavirus, right? I mean, I think Freedom House, 
uh, analyzed last year, 64 countries were less democratic than the year before, just 37 increased their democratic indexes. So uh, we saw, we, we've been seeing the rise of national populism all over the world before Corona. And when I think about this topic, I think it's kind of a very, um, it's very, it can be very well used by national populists, such a thing as a pandemic. It creates a lot of fear. It puts the dilemma between security and privacy, well, much more towards security because we need this data, we need, uh, we need information, or we need to contain certain liberties, some traditional and uh, most inherent liberties of democracy in order to contain the spread of the virus, as you mentioned. The question that is, is actually how these measures that are being implemented, for example, at the UK, a very well-established democracy, uh, can, can we consider that actually this is going to shape our future? It's difficult to say because uh, maybe most of them, they are transitory measures, right? I mean, they are not shaping how our policies are going to be because we are now restricting um, gathering. But it's, it's clear that the pandemic is happening in the moment where there was already a turmoil around democracy. For example, Bolivia is going to postpone its elections. And Bolivia last year, was well, Evo Morales had to resign because of problems on the elections. They were not considered legitimate by the uh, Organization of American States. So uh, things were already fragile. Chile was having a lot of demonstrations in the street. And now police is having to contain these demonstrations and not let people be on the streets, which is kind of helping the government also. But on the other hand, we see national populists such as Bolsonaro losing completely their reputation and their chances to win further elections because of their response towards the virus. So Brazil is a very interesting case because although a pandemic would supposedly help them to deal with this kind of threats or conspiratory theories that usually they use, it's actually undermining his um, his moral with the population. So we are seeing a lot of them and people are being quite creative in order to demonstrate that they are not happy with the government. In Brazil, for example, they are making a lot of noise with their pens when he's going to say something on the TV. On Israel, we had the first online demonstration <laughs> with people protesting yeah. uh, through the internet. So how is it going to affect our future? Good question. Maybe there are a lot of things which are transitory, but there are others that are definitely very important about the privacy of our data, especially. So yeah. it's about to see. That was Poliana Lima from Brazil and Femi Adubola from Nigeria sharing insights from the Oxford COVID-19 government response tracker and the implications of those responses on public trust and democracy. Now, what happens if your country issues a directive that all nationals must return home, you uproot your life and you return back home and test positive for COVID-19. Well, that's exactly what happened to Wing Meng and he shares his story with us on a look at the issues about the process that led to him going back to Singapore. Wing Meng, talk to us. My name is Wing Meng. Uh, I'm a Singaporean student in the Blavanik School of Government pursuing my Master's in Public Policy right now. Uh, thanks for having me here to share my experience of having a COVID-19 and basically going through the entire process uh, of testing positive and uh, quarantining and isolating in Singapore. Uh, 
Um, well, so basically my experience was, well, we were ending our Hillary term in Oxford. And uh, on 17 March, actually, I think that was the date when uh, my foreign affairs ministry basically published like an advisory for all Singaporean students to return home. Um, I mean, it wasn't really like a mandated thing, but then it was a strong, strongly worded encouragement for us to return if possible. Fundamentally, because the, of course, we trust our Singapore healthcare system and the way that we were handling it, we were trying to, I think, gather back all the Singaporeans as far as possible and tight through this, uh, what, what they were looking at as like a second wave of infections that might be coming in from abroad. Uh, well, so my wife and I, we made this decision to return home uh, and we took or we bought tickets for our flight on 24th March and that was like about a week after the advisory and we managed to make it back to Singapore uh, on 25th and we were tested because uh, I think that was part of like the process that they had, like the entire plane that we were in, all the passengers got tested for coronavirus. Um, and because we had no symptoms, we could go home and serve our 14 days stay home notice. So that was the mandated thing that the Singapore government did for all returning Singaporeans from abroad. Uh, then, well, three days later, I was uh, tested positive from the test and basically told to go into our national center for infectious diseases. But um, well, I didn't really know what to expect at the point because I was feeling like healthy and um, but I, I didn't really have any of the typical symptoms that you read about. So going in, I, it still felt quite surreal. Like I, I mean, I felt like a healthy person going to hospital. And um, well, but once I reached the hospital and they directly admitted me, uh, I think things started to feel a bit more serious because you could see everyone wearing protective gear, walking around, and then I was immediately introduced to this uh, isolation ward that they had, uh, and it's like double door. Uh, it's as serious as you can imagine. They have like this uh, mechanism where they can uh, pass you the food trays without actually having to come into the room. So, you know, everything was designed for convenience and uh, resource efficiency so that medical personnel don't actually have to keep coming in and out. But I mean, what was quite apparent to me was uh, like not knowing what exactly was going to happen. And so information flow is, is extremely important. So information flow in terms of what the, the healthcare system is going to offer you and what, what are the next steps uh, that the doctors and nurses are going to do and where will I end up and then what does it take for me to end up there and then how long the whole process will take. So those are all questions that I kept asking or I tried to ask like at one go to the nurses, to the doctors and just to have clarity on that. But at the same time as well, like I, I had no idea when I had gotten or contracted the virus. So even though I know the life cycle is about, well, people say two to three weeks, right? Uh, but I, not knowing when exactly I contracted it means I wouldn't really know when it would end, like when the virus would uh, completely be gone from my systems, I guess. Uh, that was another uncertainty. So because of all these like bigger questions and bigger anxieties, I think uh, we didn't really think so much into the moving. Like, so those were more means to an end, right? Just getting from Oxford back home. We, I mean, it was, it was definitely sad and it was definitely very disruptive for us to have to pack up really quickly. I mean, I was lucky to have my, my wife there with me and she was like, oh, really good even in times of crisis to just 
you know, get everything together. I think we even managed to sell some of the things uh, even within such a short span of time. Yeah, but uh, I, I think having, well, having something to focus on, like just almost like getting the job done. So at that point of moving out of Oxford, we were just focused on, okay, how are we going to clear up the apartment and then get everything out and pack everything up as much as we can. And then, of course, we were also focused on not falling sick because it was important for us to be able to catch the flight without like, you know, just falling sick the night before or something like this. So we were isolating for long periods and uh, we only met like um, some, some people the day before we left. And even then, we were very careful to keep a safe distance from everybody. And But it's really not ideal to, to be leaving everybody that we've gotten so close to in such a manner. But I think given the circumstances, well, to me at least, it was a uh, good distraction uh, to not think about that more, more emotional and sentimental aspect of things. So it's more like, okay, we need to do this and we need to like just get out of here quickly and then return to Singapore where we can be back home and uh, and if anything happens, we we also have a system that we understand and we can rely on more. Well, Wei Ming, thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing your story with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that is all we've got for you on this episode of A Look at the Issues. Join us again in a fortnight when we look at what influences and shapes policy design. We'll be talking with Dame Helen Gosh, former Permanent Secretary at the UK Home Office and the Department for the Environment. A Look at the Issues is a policy podcast based at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. It is researched and edited by Jasmina Bidet, Shavika Misra, and it is produced by Ellen Tipping, James Morris, and Fred Davis. And it is project managed by Desma Natome. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. We are at A Look at the Issues. And if you have any suggestions or feedback, send us an email at studentpodcast at bsg.ox.ac. UK. And you can find us wherever you get your podcast. That is all on this edition. I'm Sutra Kavari and goodbye.